Good morning. My name is Don. Uh, I'm a regular attender here, a regular part of this church or my church family. Uh, I'm also the guy that I guess that they call when our pastor gets COVID. So Chris, hope you're online. joining us and the rest of you online. Thanks for joining us as well. So uh, we're actually going through this series uh, called Choose Positive, kind of to start off the new year this morning. Uh, for the most part, I'm going to give you a positive message. That's kind of my tie to uh, our series. There is about 20% of this that will be a little bit hard. You'll know that when I get there. Uh, but the other kind of connection I have, I guess, with this Choose Positive series is that I get to share with you today. There are no notes. Sorry about that. It's actually not going to be related to uh, the Choose Positive. Those of you that are the, uh, you know, the fill in the blankers, sorry, you'll have to uh, do whatever you need to and fill in notes as kind of the Lord leaves along those lines. I didn't make the printing cutoff time. So, but you know, we live in a, an, uh, a goal-oriented, accomplish something, make it happen type of society. Society. And years ago, I came across this article and the article is titled, The Nine Most Important Words. And here's what the, their words were. They said, if it is to be, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I wonder if we're being fooled into believing that we are actually responsible for our, all our successes. And Josh kind of alluded to that too. Uh, obviously, we take steps. But there's a spiritual battle taking place in our minds and that kind of pits the earthly kingdom, what we live in, with God's spiritual kingdom that one day we'll know a lot more about. In this world, we're told, over and over, our approval and our value and our worth are based on what we accomplish, how much money we make, who we might know. Or even being now, you know, being an influencer on social media. In God's kingdom, you know, our approval, our value, and our worth is based on our standing with him. In this world, we strive to accomplish something, you know, some status, some security, some success. In God's kingdom... We have been given everything we need. Second Peter writes about that and he says this. He says, his divine power has granted us everything we need for life. Everything we need for life. And yet we seek other ways. With these two contrasting perspectives, it's a challenge to me to try and grab onto and to hold on to one of God's most amazing attributes. That attribute of grace. Philip Yancey in his book, uh, a phenomenal book called What's So Amazing About Grace writes this. He says, the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these two things. The failure to understand, receive, and live in God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. Oh, so true. And then he goes on to say the second one, the failure to give out that unconditional love forgiveness, and grace to other people. So it's receiving and giving. I heard another pastor say it this way. It's not that we need to love God more. It's that we need to understand more about how much God loves us. And we're always striving. We get those confused. We talk about grace. We quote scriptures about grace. But do we understand and live out God's grace? God is as much concerned about how we live as to what we say and believe. Look at what John writes in 1 John 3. It says this, 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And then he says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. That sounds like grace. Sharing the riches I've been given by God to those who need God's love. And John also writes this in chapter 1. It says, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It looks as though God's glory is full of grace and truth. It's fairly easy to talk about truth. It seems we'll die for it. We'll argue about it. We'll camp on truth, right? But what about grace? How much time do we talk about that? And extending and demanding God's grace just as much as we demand his truth. Here's my desire, desire for this morning. It's kind of twofold. First, that we would each have a greater sense of God's grace in our life. Maybe that we stop trying to prove we're worthy of God's love and acceptance. See, God picked you. He picked me. Not because we deserve it, but because of God's grace. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, God still loves you, and he still loves me. And secondly, that we would extend more grace to those we come in contact with, right? That we would turn, we in turn would be more gracious. And I know that's true of me, because I'm not the most gracious person. person. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity we have to gather, to worship, and I pray we would hear from you, not from me, that your spirit would lead us and draw us closer to you because of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Cause us to understand more about and implement what grace is in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Of definition you may be familiar with and seen uh, kind of an acoustic for the word grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. A gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. The word connotates favor. Grace's favor is God's favor towards us. You know, God's given us everything through his son. I know I have this word in my doctrinal vocabulary, but does it live out in my life? Is it true of our church? Are we known for grace and for being gracious? Peter finishes up one of his letters with this thought. At the end of 2 Peter, phenomenal verse, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Peter was writing to believers, followers of Jesus Christ. You know, we're good at growing in knowledge, right? We're at church. Give me some knowledge. Some of you are taking the Engage class, we're growing in knowledge. The essentials class, we're growing in knowledge. Might be part of a life group, we're growing in knowledge. But what about grace? Are we growing in God's grace? You know, I do believe the order of things listed in the scriptures is important. But growing the grace and knowledge. Are we growing in God's grace? You know, why would Peter mention grace? Maybe I was thinking about this, that... Uh, who in the scriptures would need more grace than Peter? Peter was rebuked by Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. 
Your kingdom plans and my kingdom plans are different. Dude, that's brutal. Jesus turn into you. Get behind me, Satan. Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? 70 times 7? Yeah. Peter fell asleep when Jesus asked him to pray with him in the garden. Anyone ever fall asleep while they're playing? Honesty here, yeah. I'm in that. Yep, done that with some friends one time. That was embarrassing. Peter wanted to fight for Jesus. When Jesus came to get rested, he took the sword and cut off the ear of a servant. Jesus said, no, that's not my kingdom. And then Peter claimed Jesus as the Christ and that he would never deny Jesus. Yet he did. See, communicating grace and forgiveness to Peter was so important to Jesus that he had the special fish fry on the side of the lake and asked Peter some questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He came back and made it a point. I don't know about you, but I long to understand and experience more of God's grace, more of the depth of understanding of who he is and what he's done for me. It's hard to explain, so I want to tell some stories that demonstrate what grace is all about, hopefully connecting the term and God's word and his character together, uh, and how that might look in a kind of real physical sense in our world. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend on the other side of the state, and he was telling me about a Bible study he was going to, and he uh, met a couple new guys, and they looked like they were father and son sitting next to each other, and he asked them, well, how do you, get, how do you guys know each other? And he goes, well, the younger one said, you know, this is my ex-father-in-law. Me and his daughter are divorced. That's grace. But then he continued. The young man said, you know, I was in an accident a few years ago. I was in the hospital. And when I woke up in my hospital room, there were four people there. My three sons and my ex-father-in-law. That's grace. There's a story in a movie in a kind of a book out. It's called Babette's Feast. It came out years ago, and it's kind of a, a long illustration here, so hang with me. But the, the story is set up in this small, impoverished fishing village on the, off the coast of Denmark, a town of muddy streets and kind of small, thatched-roofed houses, kind of a grim setting, uh, and a white-bearded dean led a group of worshipers, kind of this legal, legalistic Christian sect. They had few to none worldly pleasures. They all kind of wore black. Their diet, this was interesting, consisted of boiled cod and gruel made from boiling bread in water fortified with a splash of ale. You know, on the Sabbath, they met together, they sang some hymns and, and looked forward to being with Jesus in eternity. The dean, he was a widower and had two beautiful daughters, and both of them had kind of turned down men to care for their father and continue uh, his mission after he passed away. The years had passed and things started to change. The dean died and the middle-aged sisters attempted to carry on the mission of their father. Father, But without its kind of stern leadership, the sect started kind of splintering. One brother bore a grudge against another brother based on some business matters. Rumors spread about a 30-year-old sexual affair involving two of the members. A pair of older ladies, you know, at BFFs, had not spoken to each other for a decade. Although the sect still met on Sabbath, sang the songs, uh, it kind of dwindled. And despite all these problems, though, the, the, the two daughters remained faithful, organizing and serving the community and feeding people that were unable to feed themselves. And then one night, they heard kind of a heavy thump on the door. And they go to the door, answer the door, and they found this woman. 
They revived her, but she spoke only Danish. She handed them out, uh, so she spoke only French. She handed them out, uh, she handed them a letter from a guy named Papin who had courted one of these daughters years before. At the sight of his name, the daughter, kind of, daughter's face kind of flushed and her hands kind of trembled, but she read the letter. And the, the woman's name was Babette. She had lost her husband and son during the Civil War in France. Her life was in danger. She had to flee. And Papine had remembered this village and had sent her there for her own safety. And the letter said, Babette can cook. The sisters hadn't any money to pay her and felt, you know, attention about We can't employ her. But they worked out a deal and kind of communicated with her, and they decided she would work for room and board. For the next 12 years, Babette worked for the sisters. She show, was shown how to split cod and, and cook the gruel, which got her real excited being from France. Uh, but she fed the people of the town, took over all the housekeeping. She helped with the Sabbath services, and everyone enjoyed her presence, her encouragement, her service. And it came to a great surprise one day. After 12 years, she received a letter. Babette received a letter. And he found out each year in France, uh, in Paris, a friend of Babette's had uh, taken Babette's number and put it into the lottery. And that year she had won. It was like 10,000 francs. The sisters congratulated her, but also their hearts sank, realizing she'd probably leave now that she had some money. But the winning kind of coincided with the sisters who were planning the 100th anniversary of their father's birth. Babette came to them and asked them this, had made a request. She said, in the 12 years, I've asked nothing of you. Could I cook a French meal for this celebration? The sisters were a little nervous, but they're right. She's never asked anything, and they said, yeah, you could do this. So when her money arrived, Babette kind of had left the village for a little bit to order some food, and then this food started coming into the village. Workmen pushed wheelbarrows loaded with crates of small birds and champagne and wine. Uh, there was an entire head of a cow, fresh vegetables, truffles, uh, lots of different things start coming in, fine china, goblets, candles, and the like. And the two sisters seen this and were kind of coming alarmed, like, what is going on here? This is crazy. And they went to their small uh, group, their, their sect, and said, you know, we're not going to say anything about the food. We'll just kind of keep our mouths shut. The idea, thinking you know, that tongues were meant for praise and thanksgiving, not for indulging in exotic foods and tastes. The sisters were pleased to learn an unexpected guest would join them, a 90-year-old lady who had previously known their father. And she would be accompanied by uh, her nephew, who was a cavalry officer and who had courted the other sister long ago, and now he was a general serving in the Royal Guard in France. The day came, the guests arrived, and Babette cooked and served a meal, seven courses in all. Those in the sect kept quiet, keeping their word not to say anything about this extravaganza. But all the visiting general could speak of was this amazing feast, the finest of wine, amazing champagne, turtle soup, quail, the most amazing desserts, and so much more. And he said this, even being part of the French royal court, I have only ever had one such a meal years ago in a French restaurant at Café Anglaise, who had a female chef. The banquet feast kind of worked a little miracle on the Christian sect. 
Their blood kind of warmed and remembered the days of the dean and what he'd preached and taught. The brothers reconciled their business matters. The marriage that had struggled for years was restored. The BFFs became BFFs again, best friends again. Babette's feast ends with two scenes. Outside the, their little house, out the, this thatched house, the old-timers kind of joined hands and sang songs, these hymns, and were reunited once again. And the author says this, it says, as if they had indeed their sins washed white as snow. The final scene takes place inside in the wreck of the kitchen piled high with unwashed dishes and greasy pots and broken crates and vegetable trimming and empty bottles, kind of like your kitchen after Thanksgiving with 20 guests, right? Got that mess piled high and Babette's sitting there. See, no one had spoken to Babette about the dinner. And the sisters remembered that. And then one of the sisters came to her and said, you know, that's quite a dinner. Babette seems far away. And after a while, she said to them, I was once a cook at the Café Inglaise in France, in Paris. And they said, we'll all remember you this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette, the sister said. Slow down. Babette tells them, She'll not be going back to Paris. All her friends and relatives have been killed or imprisoned. And of course, it would be expensive to go back to Paris. But what about the 10,000 francs, the sister asked? And then she drops the bombshell. She spent every last penny of her winnings on this feast for these 11, 12 people. Don't be shocked, she tells them. That is what a proper dinner for 12 costs at the Café Anglaise. See, grace, it's a gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the receiver. See, for God so loved the world that he gave. I read another story from Ernest Hemingway in this book, and he tells about the story of a man who desired to be reconciled with his son Paco, who had run away to Madrid. Remorseful, the father takes out an ad in the local paper, which read, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiving, papa. And Paco is a common name in Spain. And when the father goes to the square to meet his son, he finds 800 young men seeking to be restored with their father. So each and every one of us has turned away from our Heavenly Father. And God has advertised to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, all is restored because of my grace. I've always struggled to understand grace. And one of the verses, probably a familiar verse to you, says this. Uh, I think we Pop that up on the screen there. For as by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. How do I communicate a truth that is very emotional on an intellectual level? Years ago, I was encouraged by a pastor who had this quote and expressed something like this. He expressed, if you can quantify something so exactly that's not capturing the whole thing. 
And I think a lot of times we try and think we understand some things of God and we have it figured out and we don't. Grace for me, I'm growing in that, but I don't got it figured out, but I want more of it. It draws me to who God is. I pray it draws you. If we think we understand God's grace and don't, we need to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a problem. Another thought related to that. Do I really believe, do you really believe you need God's grace in your life? So a quick true and false quiz. There's only two questions, true, false. I would have had this in your notes. Didn't make the deadline. So you don't have to raise your hand, say anything out loud, but I'm going to ask you a couple questions related. Do we really need God's grace? So it's a true or false. That's all you got. No in-between, all right? You in-betweeners, you got to go one or the other. First statement, true or false, I'm 100% evil. True or false. Second, I'm rotten to the core. True or false, you have to decide that. See, watch this. We're sinners, right? Theologically, every person in this room and I'm going to categorize it, we're rats, okay? And I'm going to give you another acrostic here, we're rats. Here's what it stands for, we're rats. We're rebellious, right? The R, we're rebellious. A, we're arrogant. We're full of pride. We like to do our own thing. T is like, you know, we're terrible. We're kind of trash. And S is we're selfish. We want our own things. We want them now. We want affirmation here and stuff like that. We're all about social media. I mean, look at social media. That just confirms how selfish we are. Drives me nuts, and I'm slowly trying to get rid of it. Yeah, I'm addicted, right? It's bad junk for the most part. See, God's grace will not connect us if we don't grasp how evil we are. Now, if I were to ask this question, are you a sinner? 100% of us would say yes. That's what a sinner is. We have minimized what a sinner is in our life. If you want an incredible passage, read Romans 3. And Paul kind of capsulizes it when it comes down to Romans 3.23, which a lot of us are familiar with, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means. We're rats. If you don't think so yet, let me ask you some questions. We're going to go through these real quick, all right? Don't, you don't have to answer them out loud. I don't want to volunteer all of us sinners together, but we should be in this together, being uh, an authentic church, right? Honesty and stuff. So question number one, have I gotten angry, mad or angry at someone today already, okay? Okay. Question number two, I've judged someone today. What they've worn, the music, the guy speaking up front, he's way too long. What's he think he's doing, right? It's all right. Judge the teacher, the kids, whatever it is. We judge real quick. Yeah, third question, I've complained and whined about something today. Not even that late. It's not even lunchtime yet. Number four, I've gossiped or slandered about someone today. Ouch. Right? How do we do these things? And we can go on. Any on? Do we recognize our sin? Matthew 6, 19 says this. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where are your treasures? Where am I storing up my treasures? That's a good idea of where my heart is. We can look at our checkbooks. Where does our money and our time go? That tells us a lot about our focus. It's painfully sobering to reflect on the condition of our hearts, but we must understand the gravity of our wickedness if we desire to experience God's amazing grace. If I went down to a drug rehab center and asked them, how many of you feel like a rat? 
probably every hand would go up. If I asked the same question at a seminary chapel, what would people say? James writes this, he says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Oh, brutal. See, do I seem to recognize my sin? Some of you have been to AA or other rehab programs. I worked in a treatment center years ago where we took some students to AA and become familiar with it. Two of the 12 steps, step four and five, listen to this. Step four, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Are we willing to do that? Psalm 139 talks about search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. Step five of the 12 steps, admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. James also tells us to confess our sins to one another. We're not real good at that. But that's something we probably should do to help. Our understanding of eternal things such as God's greats relates to these two steps. It's painfully, it's painful to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of my life. When we do that, we realize we are ugly. The capital U, right? The good news is more to the story. The best part about being a rat, guess what? God's not an exterminator. God is not an exterminator. But until we realize that rat in us, will we recognize our need for God's grace and to seek his understanding? If we don't understand that we deserve eternal separation from the God of the universe. How are we going to grasp his grace and what he's freely given us? One of, the, one of Jesus' stories, parables about grace that made it into three of the gospel. Here's a slightly different version. It appeared in another source, the Boston Globe, a paper, and this came out in June 1990. It was about an unusual wedding banquet. The fiancé's uh, had met at the Hyatt Regency in Boston, set their planning, kind of organized, uh, had set a down payment for this feast that they wanted for them. It was like $13,000. They had to lay down half that, like $6,500. She's getting ready to mail out, the day she's getting to ra- mail out the invitations to the wedding, the uh, potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little bit longer. Not what you want to hear. When his angry fiance returned to the Hyatt to kind of cancel this banquet, uh, the banquet manager was very understanding, but also said and communicated to her, there's not a cancellation policy. We can give you back $1,500 to deposit, but the rest, no. So she had a decision to make. You can have the banquet, or you can take this little money back. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about this, the more she liked the idea of going ahead and having a party. See, 10 years ago, 10 years previous to that, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She'd gotten back on her feet, found a good job, set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat those less fortunate in Boston to a night on the town. And that's what she did. So in June of 1990, in downtown Boston, hosted a party they'd never seen before. The hostess actually changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. 
right? So it was kind of fun. But the Hyatt waiters and tuxedos served this group of people. And there's an amazing party. What an incredible picture of God's grace. Whether good or bad, the only right of entrance to the feast is that of grace. A gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. An Italian novelist wrote about a revolutionary uh, revolutionary hunted by the police. So this revolutionary is trying to find a, the police, and he takes up, kind of uh, disguises himself as a priest, and he goes up into the hills. But he goes up into the hills, and the peasants up there are like, oh, we got a great, we got a priest. And all these peasants start going to him, wanting to confess and share their stories uh, and about their lives and just the struggles they had. And he tried to pro protest, but he ended up listening to the stories of people starving for grace. Is that not why we're here this morning? Don't we all want more grace in our lives to understand that? See, what are Christian, Christians and followers of Christ known for? Usually for condemning things in the name of truth. Wouldn't it be great if we heard people associate Christians with amazing grace versus being against different things? Do you realize that not one of us would even be here if it weren't for grace? We wouldn't even be here. One last story. A young girl grows up in a small Midwest town. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father after another argument. And after that argument, she carries out what she's pictured in her mind a hundred times. She runs away. She's visited the big city only once before on a bus trip with the, her youth, youth group from church to watch a professional event. She figures out the big city would be the last place her parents would look for. Her. her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay, gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She lives in the penthouse, orders room service, whatever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and small, small town that she can hardly believe where she grew up. She has a brief scare when one day she sees her, her picture starts popping up on social media with the headline, have you seen this person? But by now she has blonde hair with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry she wears. Nobody would mistake her for this girl. After a year, the first signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habits. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown big city can never relax. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for footsteps, 
all of a sudden everything about her life look, looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl. Lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts her memory and she, an image comes back to her hometown in the spring when the flowers and tre trees are blooming, her dog running across the lawn to chase a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? The pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I. She's sobbing and knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to be home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with dad's voicemail. She hangs up without leaving a message in the first two times. But the turn t third time she says this, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. I'll let, I'll be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll stay on the bus until it gets to Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between the big city and her hometown. And there, during that time, she realizes her plan might have some flaws. What if her parents were out of town? What if they never get the message? And even if they were home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to think about what they want to do and overcome the shock. Her, thought, her thoughts bounce back and forth as she starts to rehearse her, her speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says these words over and over, realizing that she hasn't apologized to anybody in years. When the bus rolls into the station, the driver announces in his kind of crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks her compact in the mirror, soothes her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into a terminal not knowing what to expect, but not one of a thousand scenes has played out in her mind that prepared her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs of the bus terminal stands a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins, people of the town. Welcome home, says the big banner on the back of the bus terminal. A crowd of well-wishers uh, uh, there standing, and her dad runs through them, gives her a hug, and she starts her speech. She said, Dad, I'm sorry. I know. And he interrupts her, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We're late for a party. Let's go enjoy the banquet. God's riches at Christ's expense. A gift that costs everything for the giver and nothing for the recipient. And back to the verse in 2 Peter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever.
Amen. Heavenly Father, I long for grace. I think we'll all long for grace as we're temporarily here in this world. Thank you for the grace you've given through your son, Jesus Christ. Cause us to understand it more. Cause us to know how much you love us. What you've given up for each and every one of us. Would we seek you along with truth? They balance each other out. But grace is something, again, we don't talk a lot about other than maybe throw a verse and throw it out there. Would we understand the emotional side of what you've given for us and just how much you care for us? It's a longing of our hearts and I think how you've created us and, and you know, with the, the separation that we have because of sin. Build that closer for each and every one of us. And with that, as we understand it, would we share that? Would we exude that? Would that bubble up from out from us, from our insides to the outside and just overflow to everyone we come in contact with? God, I praise and thank you that you extended grace to us. Being rats, but now we're forgiven and now we're children of yours if we've accepted your son, Jesus Christ. So God, thank you for all you've done for us drive it home daily how much we mean to you. In Christ's powerful name we pray.